on today's episode of May the Record Reflect. What I will say, though, about women that are in law now or starting out as maybe junior associates or or trying to move up the ranks, maybe just coming out of law school, is that they have a lot of choices and a lot of potential because it's it's an industry that's been built on the backs of really fascinating women such as Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, whose first job as a lawyer was a receptionist at a law firm. And people have fought their way up, you know, women on the bench and women on the bar and things like that, where now you do have women walking in and being hired at law firms, for example, and they do have a little bit more respect than what they would have 20 years ago, 40 years ago. And so they're able to come in and have more options. They're able to come in and look to more female senior mentors and know what's possible. Welcome to May the Record Reflect, the monthly podcast of the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. I'm your host, Marcy Buckmelter, and joining me today are U.S. Federal Judge Aliyah Moses and commercial litigator Nicole Westbrook. Judge Moses is dialing in from the United States District Court for the Western District of Texas, where she has served as a U.S. District Judge since the year 2002. She's the first woman federal judge in history to serve for the Western District of Texas. Our second guest is Nicole Westbrook, and she is joining us from Denver, where she is a litigator with the downtown law firm of Jones & Keller. Nicole's litigation practice is focused on complex commercial law, where she takes on underdog cases in intellectual property theft and trade secret litigation, among other cases, and prevails for her clients. She also is a faculty member for the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. That's us. And our topic today is women and the law. Judge Moses and Nicole Westbrook, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you for making time for Nita today. We have so much to talk about this afternoon, and I know it's going to be a fascinating conversation, so I don't want to put it off for another minute. I would first like to know how you both got started in your legal careers. I gave just a little bit of background on you both during my introduction, but I would love it if you could pick up where I left off. Judge Moses, would you go first? Sure. I have no idea why I decided to be a lawyer, but I knew in high school that was eventually what I wanted to do. And so after graduating from Texas Women's University, I traveled to Austin and and went to the University of Texas School of Law. While there, I became a legal researcher for the Travis County. Their law library was separated from the jail facilities, and so they were under a consent decree to provide legal research to the prisoners. And so we did that research for the prisoners before I became a law clerk at the county attorney's office. And that's where I stayed and started my career in Austin at the Travis County Attorney's Office as an appellate and a trial lawyer. All right. How about you, Nicole? Where did things start for you? Uh, You might not be surprised to learn that things started with me in Judge Moses's chambers. Uh huh. I actually came straight out of law school into a clerkship and was one of two of the first clerks Judge Moses had as a federal district judge. 
And so I stayed there with her for a few years um, because she roped me into running some a series of marathons. So I couldn't get away. Um, and then after that, I came to Denver and started in a large national law firm and then finally found my way to Jones & Keller, which is a midsize Denver firm. All right. Do you recall what drew you into the law? My answer is the same as Judge Moses. I have no idea whether it is destiny or dumb luck, but I do really enjoy what I do. What was it like for you both when you were baby lawyers as women? It was very interesting when I became a lawyer in 1986. There were few of us. I mean, there were there were a good number, but not the numbers that we have today. And we had to dress a certain way. We had to act a certain way in the courtroom. Being an aggressive or a tough or an ambitious woman made you mean, shrill, somebody to be avoided. And so even our demeanor in the courtroom had to be somewhat meek. And that's that's one of the nice differences that I'm now seeing in the in the legal practice for women. But that horrible um, dress for success look from the 70s. We actually had to wear ties and button down shirts with our suits. Oh, awful. Exactly. I have boxes and boxes of those ties. <laughs> and what about you, Nicole? What do you remember? Of course, I got lucky because I came out and my first introduction to the judicial system was working with a strong female uh, trial lawyer, Judge Moses. Uh, it was very different when I left the court and went to work at a firm, however. I went to the firm and there was one female attorney at the firm who was a part-time attorney. And she soon left because her family moved. So then I was on my own. And that would be something that would be very typical throughout my tenure, both at the big law firm and then now. So the firm I'm at now has one other female partner and myself. And that's, that's all that I see on a daily basis. Typically for me in the commercial litigation field, it will not be unusual to go to trial or to go into any hearing and have the judge be male, my opposing counsel male, and both clients on, on either side of the table would be male as well. And so it's, it's a special honor to have clerked for a female judge. And I also very much enjoy it every time I get a chance to have a female opposing counsel. Nicole, do you think that part of the reason that you are vastly outnumbered by men is because of the practice area you were in? It's possible. I do think that there are different practices and they accommodate different scheduling. Um, I think that there may be a reason why women would not choose a commercial litigation situation where maybe there are times when you're going into trial and your full commitment is required to the practice. Um, but, but I'm not sure exactly why that is. I know that in employment law, it seems like that space has a lot of good female attorneys. Likewise, in some of the family law matters, there are a lot of good female attorneys. And even in, in sometimes in criminal law, you'll run into a lot of good female attorneys. And so I, I wish I knew the answer to that question. May I say that one of the one of the issues that we faced back in the late 80s, early 90s, when I was still a practicing attorney as opposed to a judge, perception meant everything. And the clients had to feel comfortable with you and the jury had to you know, accept you and be comfortable with you. And so your persona was pretty much in terms of the perceptions of society. 
Unfortunately, I think for women lawyers today, and especially in the commercial litigation area, I think perception is still everything. It's a question of whether or not the people that are hiring the firm for those matters are going to be willing to receive advice from a female. Well, that's fascinating and depressing. Uh, We're making strides, though. Judge, your entire career has been in the public realm, if I'm not mistaken, starting at the county attorney's office and then the U.S. attorney's office. Then you were a magistrate judge, and now you are seated on the federal bench. Do you recall a time when you first thought, hmm, being a judge is something I might like to do? I actually came to Del Rio, Texas from Austin about three or four years after becoming a lawyer to open and establish the U.S. Attorney's Office in Del Rio for the Western District of Texas. And uh, I thought I was going to do that for a long time. It was fascinating. It was good work. It was interesting, I will say, though, because being a single female at the time, the agents and their wives didn't know whether it was safe for the <laughs> for their husbands to come and work with me. Um, but I knew that once I once I got three or four years under my belt and I started seeing how things were working, um, I thought, yeah, I can do this. I can be a judge. I can uh, I can practice and do something for my community as a judge. And so that's when I started working towards that goal. I want to know what both of you see as the main issues that are facing women lawyers today. I defer to the judge. <laughs> I think it's still that perception uh, matter. I I note that I, I preside over many, many jury trials. And unlike maybe what Nicole sees, I do have a chance to see a female prosecutor versus a female defense attorney. And then you have a female judge and you may have a, a female probation officer in the courtroom. Um, but I still notice that if the female gets a little bit aggressive with the witness, the jury gets a little bit turned off, whereas a male would not be as offensive necessarily to the to the juries. I think there's a there's an old quote, and I still think it's pretty applicable to some degree. It says, when a man speaks, people listen. But when a woman speaks, people look. And if they like what they see, then they listen. I still think there's some of that mixed in there. And so I, for me, I also think presentation, how we dress is still an important part of of how we're perceived and, and making us successful in a courtroom setting. And with respect to firm life, I think there's a little bit of an institutional bias. I do think that if you look around most firms, regardless of their size, what you're going to see a lot of is white men. Uh, And I think it's a little daunting to walk into a firm, perhaps as a young female attorney starting out, and most of what you see that looks like you is a person that's answering a phone or being otherwise helpful by making copies or bringing around papers. And I think it takes a little bit of moxie to uh, walk into a conference room full of men and to stand up for yourself and to be heard and to believe in yourself and that you're able to give good advice and you're able to stand toe-to-toe with people that maybe don't look like you. Um, You also need to be pretty adept at forging relationships um, with people that maybe don't look like you. You need to create those relationships and learn how to work with people who might have a vastly different background than you. So I think institutional bias is a tough one. May I add a a couple of real funny stories from when I first started as an AUSA in 1990. I came to look at my office in Del Rio from Austin, and it was kind of a holiday, so I was just wearing 
jeans and a t-shirt and short hair and no makeup. And the court security officer asked me to come over to a bulletin board and asked if I wanted to apply to be the secretary for that new woman lawyer that was coming. And he nearly fainted when I told him I was a new woman lawyer coming. Then I went upstairs to my office and a gentleman walked out of the probation office and gave me his card because he thought I was a probationer coming to report. But nobody mistook me for that new woman lawyer that was coming to Del Rio. Well, you surprised them. Well, I surprised myself, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Nicole, I was interested in hearing you mention Moxie and not often seeing yourself in the the other people in the law firm, that they're white men. Um, I first got my start in the law. I'm not a lawyer, but I first got my first job in the law back in 1988. Um, I had taken some time off between high school and college, and my first job was at this huge law firm in downtown Denver, uh, very silk stocking, five stories in a in a skyscraper, and I felt really fancy. So I was the receptionist, and on my floor, I would arrive at like 7.30 in the morning, and I would tour the entire circumference to see which of my attorneys was in. And then in the evening, I would do the same thing, take my little tour, see who's in, say goodbye, see you tomorrow. And I, prior to that, had planned 100% to go to law school myself. It just seemed like the natural thing to do. And this was, this was my start. But once I left and I was in my first criminal justice class in college, my professor said he was talking about how whatever you do, don't go to law school. And I was like, that's crazy. I'm going to law school. But it introduced this idea that I could challenge that idea. And once that little door opened with my uh, CJ professor, I started thinking about, well, what was my experience like looking at this, working at this huge law firm? And what I noticed when I would make my rounds, the first ones there early in the morning were women. The ones who were still working at night when I left were women. And I hate to sound like I'm a big chicken, but it it made me think, well, how how am I going to achieve that work-life balance? I mean, the men go home and they've got a wife who is taking care of the kids and preparing their meals and running the household and doing all of that stuff. And I knew I wasn't going to have that. And so I made a different decision. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? I I think that I've heard that story a few times before. And the idea of having work-life balance is definitely something to shoot for. I haven't figured it out yet, and I've been practicing since 2002. So I I agree with you. And we'll get to it a little bit later, but I think that that's one of the beautiful qualities, too, about being a female lawyer is that they do often work very hard. And through that hard work, you can shine. Yeah. I have a close friend who I met through Nita who says that she has in her work, she has a big heart, which is true, and a strong backbone, also true. So one of the issues then, since we talked a bit about work-life issues, is that in the past, working, asking for a, a flexible work environment or work schedule has always been answered with a no. Do you find that that's changing? In my area, I, I still I still feel that, and maybe this is just my um, 
my beliefs from my from when I started as a lawyer is that we women still have to work twice as hard to get half the credit. But I'm thankfully in a position where being where I am, that's not questioned as much as it used to be. But I don't know, Nicole, how about and from your point of view? You know, law firms are the classic barge. They're slow to turn, right? They, it takes a very long time for law firms to change. They're, they're old institutional. This is one of the oldest professions out there. And so they're top heavy and they have a lot of opinions coming from the top. So I think that the COVID situation has been really interesting because you've seen different firms that have been able to kind of switch seamlessly to this remote work environment. And it hasn't been much of a problem. I'm sure it's been a learning curve for all of us, but it's certainly been a very interesting situation where you see who's able to adapt quickly and well and who hasn't been able to. And I think it's healthy. There's a lot of questions concerning how much overhead law firms spend on these big beautiful, glorious five-story office spaces with artwork and collections. And is that the best way to showcase your firm's talent? Or is it a little bit different? I actually received a recruiting request not too long ago from a law firm that is an international law firm that prides itself being on a complete remote work environment. And so it seems to me that maybe the tides are turning a little bit. And maybe there will be some uh, way to practice that. Again, I do think it's going to be culture specific to your firm. And I think it's going to be practice group specific. So for me, with all of my junior associates who are litigation associates, I explain to them, you need to get comfortable quickly working wherever you are, because I need you to go into a courtroom and be as effective in that courtroom as you are in your office. You better be able to pull up every exhibit you need. You better be able to find your contracts, whatever you need. You need to be able to do it there. And then sadly, because it's the practice, you also need to be doing it on vacation and Christmas Day and some of those other things that we wish didn't exist. But, you know, I think that litigation translates pretty well into a remote practice. I think that some of my transactional partners have a much more difficult time with that because when they're closing a huge deal, they feel like they need to get everyone in one room or in one wing of the office, and then be able to work collaboratively. So I think that it it may depend on your firm culture, and it may also depend on your specific practice. It doesn't seem like things are going to go completely back to the way they were were before. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Marcy, if I may say, I think that the, um, the remote workplace will actually benefit women. I think it will allow them to have a little bit more of that life work balance because we tend to do well working on our own sometimes and we're able to do that. Me personally, I still want some face-to-face time with some of my people. It doesn't have to be every day of the week. It doesn't have to be every hour. That is also a very valuable part of the practice and I would hate for us to lose it completely. Right. Anything that keeps us from self-marginalizing ourselves in our career, that is definitely progress, but could move forward. In preparing for this, you shared with me the fact that a lot of women drop out of the law, their particular law firm at year eight, which is right around the time that they typically 
make partner. Do you have any insight into that strange phenomenon? Well, I do think that most law firms are set up with an expectation of attrition. And so they hire a huge associate class the first year, and they expect that each year a few people will drop out so that by the time you get to year eight, which is roughly when people are making partners, sometimes seven, sometimes more, then you have less people to make the next step. Um, But I've always wondered, why is it that once you make that next step right around that time frame, why is it that you're losing so many women? And I think it could be a number of reasons. Um, I think that by year eight, you certainly know whether you like what you do or you don't. You certainly know whether it fits you or it doesn't. And at that point, too, you may know yourself well enough to know, are you getting out of your life what you're looking for or do you want to do other things? And so, you know, if you came straight out of high school, went to college, straight out of college, went to law school, then by the time that you're in year eight, you know, is that partially the, the years when you are interested in doing other things? Maybe, maybe those are childbearing years. And if they are, is your law firm giving you the flexibility and or the, the services that you need to keep you coming back? Are they going to give you a flex schedule or a part-time schedule? Are they going to accommodate what you need? The big national law firm that I worked at, I was an associate and I made partner. And then shortly after I left that firm to go to a different firm, one of my colleagues who had been an associate with me asked to take maternity leave and then to switch to an of counsel type of position where she would work part time. And the firm just rejected it. So despite all the clear policies allowing for maternity leave and for uh, a potential flex schedule, it's just year to year, maybe based on economics, uh, maybe based on your individual record and how you practice and what you've achieved. There might be room for you to be a part-time and there might not. And so, and I I think it's a tough question for women to ask um, their law firms as well, because again, if it were me in that position, the woman that I would have had to go to as the most senior female practicing in the law firm was me. And I was, I think, a year or two ahead of this woman. In my generation, if you, you were either on partner track or you were on mommy track. But if you were on mommy track, you were never going to make partner at a firm. So you're going to see a lot of females of my generation that we'd never had children because at the time we had a career and we wanted to, to have it go forward. So there were a lot of us that did sacrifice that piece of our lives, the family, the children, because you couldn't, you weren't seen as being able to have both. Yeah, it's a choice. It's a choice women get to make, not men. Or that we have to make and not men. So why do you think there are so many female judges then at the state level and not quite so many at the federal level? At the state level, one of the things that I'm seeing in my area is that you have a lot of women that are willing to run um, for the positions. It's an elected position every four years. And so I know that the closest large city in San Antonio, women have a a really good time in terms of winning uh, these benches and taking them away from the from the males. Um, it's an interesting phenomena. 
I don't know if it has to do with a political um, climate or what may be going on. In the federal arena, the one thing I do notice is that very few women do take that leap and apply to be considered, to be vetted. It's a very, very severe vetting process as well. It takes a long time and it you have to go through all sorts of hoops and all sorts of vetting. And the women tend to be the ones that draw the most opposition from different corners. I know I drew a lot of opposition when I went through the position. Um, there was another friend of mine that was being considered in San Antonio for one of those benches. And the bar, all male and female, tore her down immediately. So she wasn't considered. So very few women do put in for these positions, unfortunately. We're starting to see an uptick in the number of women, female judges, federal judges, but it's still it's still a, a low number. And the ones that are being appointed seem to be more of the appellate type. We're, we're the bookworms, we're the writers, we're the ones behind the scene. I want to get back to women in the law firms and how they can best work with men. Do you have any insight, either of you, about what women lawyers can do to kind of bridge that gap in how they work, how they communicate, and how they network with men so that they actually find their place, the right place for them that makes them happy in their career? My perspective from my unique position now is that men do a really good job of networking with each other and women are doing a much better job of networking with each other, but we haven't figured out a way to network across the two genders. Um, There's too many mixed messages and mixed signals. And that sometimes, as Nicole noted, we're still a, a male dominated profession. And so it's important that we learn how to network um, intergender, not just intragender. I think it is important to, as much as you can, try to stick together. For example, I have an opposing counsel right now who's a senior female litigation, uh, commercial litigator like myself, um, but she's she's several years uh, senior to me. And the two of us are in front of a district judge who, for whatever reason, I think he is uncomfortable with women as practitioners, and he continues to come down pretty hard on the two of us. And um, I think the two of us are both taking it pretty hard. But after each, now it's just phone calls in front of the judge, not appearing in person. But after each time we're in front of him or or we uh, have a call with him, we we get off of there and we get you know talk to one another. And you know she gives me good advice about don't worry about it. You know continue on and and don't take it so hard. So that's it, a really nice thing for me to have her. It's a really nice thing for me to have Judge Moses because I have women that have seen this before and I can go to. I don't really have that at my firm. So it's nice for me to be able to branch out. And I think that that's a very helpful piece of the equation. I've also been very lucky to have some male mentors that have really championed me inside the firm and or my prior firm because that's what I needed to do because there was not a female that was senior to me. So I relied on my male counterparts to help pull me along and to bring me up. And there are a lot of good male attorneys that are very willing to do that. And they need to be given the chance to help you and to speak with you and speak for you when necessary if you don't have a seat at the table. And I think that more and more men are 
happy to do that. And they're, they're coming up and people are being collaborative. And so despite the institutional bias that I discussed before, I believe that there are a lot of people in the field that don't want it to stay that way forever. And they're willing to take risks if necessary to help a young female out. And so I think that's also a big piece of the equation. And like I said before, I mean, maybe some of it's just being fearless. Nicole, what you've just said about men and women leads perfectly into my next question, which is about generations and the the differences, not just between the generations relationships, but the relationships among different genders in the law. And so I was wondering if either of you have a sense as to how the law practice is different for millennial and young generation Z women than it was for the women in your generation. For me, I think that the women are not afraid to ask for me time. They're not afraid to put themselves first. My concern is, though, that they're also dealing with a generation of lawyers who are used to, I, I, I had no problems working 20 hours a day, seven days a week, if that's what I had to do. Um, and so sometimes I, I don't quite understand that perspective. Even as a female, I don't quite understand the perspective. I don't think our jobs are necessarily eight to five. And I think maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just because I'm an old woman now and it's just, you know, it's generational, as you say. You know, my grandmother didn't like the Beatle music either that we liked. And, and, you know, maybe it's something along those lines. But I think that we need to be very careful as well as females. We, We enjoy a very unique and special place in the law. We bring a very interesting perspective to the law. But we need to also be aware that we have a responsibility to the law. And as much as we definitely want and need that life-work balance, we also have to be conscious of the fact that it's not all about me. And that's one of the things that I'm kind of sensing from some of the younger generation folks. It's funny because there's a lot of dialogue right now inside law firms about what are millennials and are they good or are they bad? And there's comments made. And I think that the millennial group is just across the board getting kind of negative feedback for some reason. And and I don't even know whether it's earned, but I've heard comments like no more millennials as the receptionist because they just get in too many fights. I can't even tell you whether that's true or or not true, but you hear these comments and you think that they're interesting. Um, I also taught a program with someone at one point that was talking about be gentle with these people that you're teaching because these people grew up in the everyone gets a trophy kind of era. And so don't be too critical on them. And so there's a lot of dialogue about who these people are and, and who they aren't. And I guess time will tell what is actually true. What's funny is there's so much focus on the poor millennials that I think they're getting uh, probably tired of hearing it, but they're moving on now and they're going to move through pretty quickly and and we're on to the next thing. And so it's it's not necessarily, in my mind, relevant at this point. What I will say, though, about women that are in law now or starting out as maybe junior associates or, or trying to move up the ranks, or maybe just coming out of law school, is that they have a lot of choices and a lot of potential because it's 
it's an industry that's been built on the backs of really fascinating women, such as Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, whose first job as a lawyer was a receptionist at a law firm. And people have fought their way up, you know, women on the bench and women on the the bar and and things like that, where now you do have women walking in and being hired at law firms, for example, and they do have a little bit more respect than what they would have 20 years ago, 40 years ago. And so they're able to come in and have more options. They're able to come in and look to more female senior mentors and know what's possible. Um, One of the challenges I've always had in litigation is that I've never had a female uh, litigator that was my mentor other than uh, Judge Moses, but I didn't get to see her on her feet so much because she was in the role as a judge. And so uh, as a litigator, it's really hard to develop style. And I'm learning from men who were very good at what they did, but I don't have the same style and there's no way that I could learn that style from them. So I've created my own style by cobbling it together over the different things that I've seen. So the judicial temperament of Judge Moses and, you know, some of the lesser pound your fist on the tables from other partners that I've had that I can translate into what works well for a female. And so, you know, I, even myself, I feel incredibly blessed to have the uh, role models that I've had. And I think that your millennials or your Gen Xers, et cetera, will also have the access to those kind of people. And so it is, you know, it is a time to be positive and it is a time to feel blessed in, in this practice that we're in. I think one of the things that I do see of the younger group of women is that they're not afraid to ask us for help and ask us for um, information and how maybe they should navigate this, the legal career that they've chosen, which is a very nice situation in terms of being able to, to work as a, a mentor. I, I love my role as a mentor for all of the women lawyers and all of my law clerks, male or female. That's one of my my areas of pride in terms of my practice and my work and my career is that I can, I could be a mentor for others because it is a, it's a tough profession. It's a beautiful profession. I have a passion for the law and I know like Nicole has a passion for the law and I'd like to see that passed on. So I do like the fact that folks are not scared of asking me for help or for advice or my perspective. Yeah. The generational differences are just endlessly fascinating to me. I think partly because I've got a son who's almost 24 years old and plans to go to law school. And also because I work at NIDA and have worked in the continuing legal education field for 25 years. And I've seen how it changes. And I don't recall hearing faculty or authors or law professors talk about, well, how do I, how do I reach this person who's of this generation, the generation X or, or boomers or, or anything. But now that's actually an issue that comes up so much in, in the law school, you know, we're talking about a generation that is a digital native. They are very comfortable with technology. They don't absorb information the same way we do um, because they have had more options. You know, they can pick it up online. They read 
books that are not printed. Uh, they're ebooks, and um, I think it's kind of thrown everybody for a loop, and they're not quite sure what to make of it. So it's um, fascinating, and time will tell. But one thing for sure is that um, the law is a jealous mistress, and as you said, Judge, anyone who goes into the law has a responsibility to the law, and if you are not willing to make that commitment of time, I think you've got a tough row to hoe. And from um, my experience as a litigator, as well as I, I was, I've actually started out as an appellate attorney to now a trial court judge. I, believe you me, you can tell, and Nicole can also back me up when she worked for me. Um, you can tell when the attorneys, regardless of gender or age, have prepared and when they're not prepared. Um, it, it's, it's very obvious in the courtroom. So you better be willing to put in the time and be very well prepared because it will show. Win or lose, people will know whether you prepared or not. Yeah, I admire that the these two up-and-coming generations really prioritize things like work-life balance and inclusivity and um, flexibility and activism and all of that kind of stuff. But I I endlessly wonder, are their values going to change the workplace or will the workplace end up changing their values? Stay tuned, I guess. So speaking of that younger generation, one of the and, and social activism, one of the, the big things that's been a change is the Me Too movement. And I wonder if we could speak a little bit about whether that movement has been good for women in the law. And if so, how? I, I think having come up through the ranks, there has been a lot of different type of discrimination, gender discrimination or harassment or a combination of active ingredients. I think there were some men who didn't realize that their conduct was demeaning to a woman. Um, they didn't, it wasn't a conscious decision to either harass them or to demean them or to discriminate against them, but it happened. And I think the Me Too generation was, it has been good, or this, the movement has been good in bringing, uh, opening the door and, and bringing some light into this issue of how do you treat women in the workplace? My fear is, will it have also that knee-jerk reaction of, okay, I'm, I'm worried that I'm not going to discriminate against anybody, but they might take my style that way. So therefore, I'm not going to either be found alone with a woman. I'm not going to travel with a woman. I'm not going to, you know, maybe I'm safer with my own kind. I'm a little bit worried about that knee-jerk reaction of what effect it's going to actually have on women in the law. For sure. Men don't know what to make of it. The rules seem to keep changing in this whole area. Nicole, what do you think? Well, I think that is a good point. And, you know, that is something that would be really terrible if that is the outcome, if that's what the learning is from the Me Too movement is, I'm afraid to be alone with a female or I'm afraid to work alone with a female because other than when I worked for you, I've always been in a you know crowd full of men, and so uh, I think it's. I hope that's not what the message is. Um, I hope that what the Me Too movement has done has opened the dialogue and allows people to have serious discussions about: Am I hitting a glass ceiling? 
Am I being compensated the same way? Um, if I'm not, what is it that I'm doing wrong or something that I could be doing better or differently? I mean, there is, there is a, a huge stylistic difference between the way men present themselves or need to present themselves and the way that women do it. I mean, you talk to any uh, jury coach and they'll, a jury consultant will tell you, you know, as a woman, you need to do this and you need to do this differently. And, you know, you may look younger and so you might need to take this approach. And so there's a chance that what the Me Too movement did is it opened up this important dialogue so that we could talk about what the differences are and how we bridge the gap between the two. But certainly the fear is that it put a chill over that same dialogue that I think they were trying to open up. And that's one of the sense that I get is men are afraid to get into this dialogue because they don't know how we're going to take it. Um, whether we're going to take it seriously, whether we're going to learn something, whether they're going to learn something, which is, you know, kind of the key for the dialogue. Um, I, I think they're actually afraid to have this dialogue now. I heard maybe 10 years ago where women will apply for a job if there's 10 qualifications that um, the employer is hoping to get in a candidate. A woman will look at that and say, okay, well, I only have eight of the 10, so I'm not going to apply. But a man will look at that same list and he'll say, oh, I've got four, I'm applying. And so there's that kind of confidence that what I don't know, I can pick up on the job. You're absolutely right in that women can learn to sell themselves and not be afraid to sell themselves a little bit more in those kinds of situations. I do notice that when I receive packets for my law clerk slots, I receive a much greater percentage of male applicants and female applicants. And it may be the same kind of feeling that I, when I was in law school, I was like, I'm not qualified to go be a law clerk for any judge. So I'm not even applying. I'm not even going to apply to these firms because I'm not qualified. It, it may still be that kind of a situation, but I think women, we could learn to be bolder, I guess, in those kinds of situations. And we could learn that from men. For sure. Nicole, you talked a little bit about who your mentors have been throughout your career. And so I would like to ask the same of you, Judge. My very first boss, the county attorney in, in Travis County, when I first started, you know, I was 24 years old, just graduated from law school. And he had me work on all sorts of projects as a brand new lawyer. It, I wrote speeches for him. I helped him with pieces of legislation. I did appellate work and I did some uh, big appellate cases for him. And I did trial work and um, I worked hard. I, I earned my stripes, but he gave me the chance as a very young and inexperienced lawyer, whereas maybe some other boss wouldn't have done that. And then I had the U.S. attorney that hired me to come open the, the Del Rio office with, with a, as a lawyer with three, three and a half years of experience as a lawyer. You go down to Del Rio by yourself and start trying these multi-ton drug cases on your own in federal court, he gave me the chance to shine. And I've had that experience throughout my career. There've always been these, these uh, men who have been willing to give me chances. I had to be strong enough and I guess brave enough to be willing to say, yes, I'll take them and jump in with both feet. 
I will say I worked like a wild woman. Nicole remembers when we used to do eight jury trials in three weeks back to back. So it was 11 o'clock every night if I had to. I don't have a problem with hard work. I just want the chance to prove myself. And these people did give me a chance to prove myself. And they were all men. Nicole, do you have any young women or young men who are your mentees? Um, I don't know if anybody would classify me like that. I try really hard to pass on what I've learned and and my thoughts on work-life balance and surviving inside of a firm to the associates that work with me. It's important to feel like you're part of something and that you're trying to get somewhere with integrity and to do something that's a respectable job and make a difference in the world, even if you're only talking about financial realities, this still, these cases are important and they're important to your clients. And so you need to be respectful of the position and respectful of their time and try to get them, you know, to give, to be prideful in, in what they do. So um, I try as much as I can to pass along these things, but I guess time will tell if anybody comes back to you with a podcast suggesting that I was their mentor. Well, I will suggest that perhaps you are more of a role model than you recognize because you teach at NIDA programs and it is very meaningful and significant for other young women to see a great trial attorney who has blazed a trail for them. So we are getting close to the end of our talk here today. I just wonder if you have any advice that you've, you might like to share before the end for young women who are entering the law practice now. I'll defer to Nicole first. Um, my advice is to pursue a culture, not a paycheck. Uh, especially out of the some of the larger law firms like the type that the judge and I went to, you're very much pressured to go into the biggest law firm that you can find and uh, make that big check. And of course, we all are swimming in debt. And so it seems like a good idea at the time. And I would strongly encourage you to be more exacting than that and to really focus on the culture. And what role do you see yourself doing? And what do you want to do? I was fortunate to come out of Judge Moses's chamber, realizing that I have written, you know, major legal opinions for the Western District of Texas with her help. And there was no chance that after that, I was going to write a deposition outline for some other person to take. And so I knew very well that I wanted to be in Denver. And I came to Denver and I interviewed all over town. And I just wanted to make sure that the place that I went into was going to give me a fighting chance to be in front of the client right away, to be in court right away, to be a material part of each case and not just someone that was passing along a memo to someone more senior than myself that would be able to take that on. At the end of the day, whether you make $20,000, $40,000 less a year starting out, it's not the same as the kind of uh, role that you should get and the learning experiences that you should get. Um, it's also somewhere that you're going to have to go most every day. So you need to like the people that you work with. Be very exacting about who these people are. It's not just them interviewing you. You're also interviewing them. 
to see who they are because you're going to be spending an inordinate amount of time with these people. So pick a culture that you like. Don't pick a paycheck. Really do yourself a favor and find somewhere that you're going to enjoy working. And I think that's my biggest piece of advice for a female starting in the legal profession. Wonderful. Judge? That's a crazy situation right now because I was telling Nicole earlier today, I have a backlog of criminal jury trials, so I'm not sure when I'm going to get to any of my civil work. Thankfully, my criminal practitioners are consenting to my hearing civil cases in the meantime, since I can't hear some of their cases. I'm just, I am very passionate about the law. And Nicole can tell you that I'm, I I love the law and everything about it. So my next question you just answered, and it was, if you had to do it all again, would you go into the law? And I think your answer is yes. Yeah, I think I was born to do this. I don't know why, but I'm pretty sure that I'm, I'm where I'm supposed to be. That's great. So we have reached the end of the episode, and I've got my signature fun sign-off question. And that (laughs) is, without thinking of anything sensible or bills or anything like that, I would like to know how you would each spend a million dollars. I would travel. Where would you go? What's on your list? (sighs) I'd go back to Turkey, probably. That's a favorite spot. I enjoyed my last trip to Turkey very much. Um, I get to travel some to do training in other countries, and that's always been a lot of fun. All right. How about you, Nicole? Million bucks burning a hole in your pocket. I would too. I love what I do. There are times that I could do less of it, but in general, (laughs) I love what I do. What country do you think you'd start with, Nicole? It'd be the same answer. I would take a year off of what I do and travel for an entire year and hopefully be able to take my dog. I'd like to try some of the islands that I haven't had a chance to go to, like the Maldives and French Polynesia, some of those that are really, really far, because as a lawyer, you never actually get away from the office. And so taking a trip down to the Maldives, I think, would take you a couple of days just by flying. So it's kind of hard to string together that amount of time off. But I figure if you were, if you had a million dollars and you were just going to go for it for an entire year, you would just wipe out that whole Southern set of islands, Seychelles, everything, and, and see a different part of the world. So that's what I would really like to do. Well, I hope somehow a million dollars comes both of your ways. That would be wonderful. I would hope so too. Well, I would like to thank both of my guests today, Judge Aaliyah Moses and Nicole Westbrook, for making time in their schedules to come and visit with us today. Both been wonderful. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Marcy. (laughs) And thank you to our listeners, too, for tuning in. So please be sure to check the show notes. And while you're at it, If you like what you've heard in this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or visit the Contact Us page at nita.org. Your rating helps listeners like you find podcasts like us. Peace out, everybody, and I will catch you next month. May the Record Reflect is a Nita Studio 71 production.